0: Doo must doo doo
1: Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Bollocks, Badgers and Bacon Sandwiches and my guest is a former senior advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. The political terms left-wing and right-wing come from the seating arrangements of the National Assembly in late 18th century France, where progressive politicians would sit to the left of the president and conservative politicians to the right. Back over in the UK, the terms Tory, Labour and Prime Minister all began as insults. In 2019, there were more Mormons in the UK than members of the Conservative Party. And, still a fact today, the National Trust has over eight times as many members as the Conservative, Labour and Lib Dem parties combined. In a poll conducted back in 2013, it was found that more people in Britain believed in ghosts than supported the Labour Party. And it's also a fact that Scotland has twice as many pandas as Conservative MPs. When former Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson was famously hit in the face with a raw egg in 1970, his response was, if the Tories get in, in five years, no one will be able to even afford to buy an egg.
0: The thing is, right, I'm so busy, I've actually managed to injure myself.
1: That's my guest today, Aisha Hazarika. A mugwomp is an independent person, particularly in politics, who doesn't follow any specific party. And the word Straussvogelpolitik, I know I'm pronouncing that okay because I speak Dutch, means pretending you didn't notice something and carrying on regardless. It's literally a translation of ostrich politics. Research shows that it's possible to predict your politics by testing your neural responses to disgusting images. The more strongly you respond, the more likely you are to be a conservative and so maybe Boris Johnson's hair is strategic, not accidental. The England football team has never won the World Cup under a Tory or a Liberal government, which could well be Keir Starmer's best angle in the lead up to the next election. And in an experiment conducted in Moscow, people had to have a drink every 12 minutes and answer questions about politics. The study ran for 90 minutes in total and showed that the more people drank, the more they began to support the government, which might be Labour's second. And best strategy
0: i had like the most granny shoes on possible like and I still managed to fall into a pothole.
1: Aisha Hazarika is a journalist, comedian and broadcaster. In her role as former Labour Party Special Advisor, she helped write speeches and gags for, among others, Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband. She's also worked for Gordon Brown. When Harriet Harman was attacked by William Hague during Prime Minister's questions for being pictured in a stab-proof vest, she responded, primed by Aisha by saying, look, when it comes to fashion advice, I'm not going to take any from the man in the baseball cap. Aisha helped draft the 2010 Equality Act and in 2016 received an MBE for services to politics. She still plays an active role in the Labour Party. Aisha and I talked about hair, heels, hustle, menopause, the Labour Party, imposter syndrome, panel shows, after dinner speaking, Institutional racism, stereotypes, invisibility, Ed Miliband, careers, and childbearing years. But I started by asking her about her show on Times Radio.
0: I really love it and it is brilliant. And thank you so much for coming on, Callie. It's just always so lovely I love to have you on. It. I love doing
1: I just love doing radio. It's my favourite medium. Isn't it
0: amazing? I love, I love it so much. I feel and like And I love the
1: lack of pressure on... I know there shouldn't be pressure on how we look. But 100%. I absolutely hate how upset I get by how I look on television, which I know I shouldn't care about. But on radio, fantastic.
0: I completely could not agree with you more. I completely agree. It takes away that level of a pressure about how you look but also it just allows you it frees it's very liberating you know I think for women particularly of our age still very young obviously thanks for saying
1: our that's very kind of you I think I'm older than you no no I'm older than you no we can,
0: get,
1: we can get this out there what what's your year of birth are you sure if you're happy to have that on the podcast 1833 18 god you're looking amazing I know it's yeah, same for me regularly. 1834
0: <laughs> It is true. Like, I think it's so nice to just focus on what you are going to say and not how you're going to look. So I do quite a lot of TV this morning. I was really up at the crack of dawn doing Good Morning Britain, which, again, I love doing. But you are. I burn half an hour. I have to get there so early because at that point in the morning, doing makeup is more like doing heavy duty plastic surgery on me. <laughs> it's so traumatic for everyone involved. I can't get my contact lenses in, so I have to wear my massive glasses, which are like totally like look like they've been made at NASA because they're so. I thick. like your
1: glasses. There's a bit of Thunderbirds about them. In yeah, a good they're, way. <laughs>
0: they're just so <laughs> thick. And also because I'm so blind, it looks like my head like only starts right by where my eyes end. So it looks brilliantly distorted. In the- I think you're
1: being a little harsh on yourself. Did you not think about having the laser surgery? I had it done about 30, no, not 30, 20 years ago. I had laser surgery.
0: I think I'm too blind to have laser you're too surgery. too far gone. I'm too far gone. I've always had bad eyesight. But you go into the, like, the studio in the morning and you spend so much time faffing around and they do their best, but you still look horrific because it's like six o'clock in the morning. And you just think, I feel a bit weird because I feel like I look terrible. And, you know, you shouldn't be thinking about that. You should just think about what you're saying. And I'm next to Michael Portillo, who's dressed up like a quality street and he doesn't care how he he looks. (laughs) Do you think
1: Michael Portillo doesn't care how he looks? I mean, that's not a general existential question. But at that, do you think in that scenario, we well, look, are wearing as women. I don't, think you, I don't women. think
0: you threw an outfit together like that by accident.
1: I want to know what he was wearing now. Oh, I'm he's thinking always... purple crushed velvet was involved. It's always, always a very
0: bright colour. There's always like <laughs> a sort of a mustard trouser and a sort of purple shirt. Um, the other day we were actually quite colour coordinated. I think we were both wearing like a red jacket.
1: But you know, and that's much worse than clashing with Michael Portillo, I think, isn't it? Be, matching. Michael matchy Portillo. matchy.
0: You don't want that at your eulogy, do you? Matchy matchy. No, that that's not good in terms of your like your fashion life. But you look. At, I, I remember doing this job for CNN, and like I was the only woman on the show, and the men could rock up literally five minutes before we went on air. Quick dusting of powder, quick comb through the hair, done. I was literally told to come in ninety minutes before we went on air. It's just so annoying as a woman. I know it is. And also the fact that we have to, I mean, yeah, there's an
1: argument, should we have to do that? But the amount of time you end up factoring into your day, do you know what I mean? I always, if I have to do exercise and do something where I look all right, and most days, right, we're on stage or we're on screen or we're doing something, just trying to factor in, like, when do you wash your hair? How do you get your shit together? And I just think, God, if I was like a bald man, I think I could get, I think I could have written a novel in the last week, if the time I'd have saved on my hair and my mascara
0: written a novel, learned another language, found, you know, invented some vaccine, like all the things you could have done. It's so, particularly coming out of lockdown, because I think that period was incredibly liberating for people like us who do have to be on show pretty much every day. It was, as much as it was awful not working, it was also intensely liberating not to faff around with various brushes on your face and brushes through your hair. And it was like being given the gift of time.
1: I know. And I I also loved the fact that I had all these clothes that I hadn't quite got round to throwing away, but I knew didn't really fit me. And then I was like, oh, my God, for top half up, they're absolutely fine. So I had all these beautiful dresses and things. There's no way I could actually go out in and do like an after dinner speech because they don't zip up. Mm. But they were great for Zoom. So suddenly I was like the best dressed Zoom speaker <laughs> on the planet. But I do wonder why we why we as people who use our voices to promote feminism to to try and get rid of those stupid stereotypes and expectations. I wonder why am I even thinking about hair and makeup and heels?
0: It is interesting. It is something I have definitely grappled with through lockdown because of everything we've just discussed. And I just thought time is so precious when you're so busy. Why am we burning or why am I burning however much time it is. Now the, menop- the perimenopause has hit. So like basically those, those days of those days have gone. And um, I basically turn up in like my gardening outfit, things like I do even garden, but like if I did garden, my kind of gardening outfit. I do feel like the lockdown has created a bit of a shift in a lot of women I know who, who are in similar positions to us, similar ages to us, similar backgrounds to us, similar thinking to us. I do know a lot of women who are really grappling with this now because some of it is I just literally can't be bothered. Like life is just too short. But then there is the other thing, which is well, if you are doing a big event like we do, you need a lot of hot spot and you need a lot of confidence. And if you do look good, then or as good as you can get, it gives you a confidence boost. I think I always feel like I can kind of hustle a bit more or be a bit more Me confident. Too. There's a is. part of the yeah.
1: ritual. About, I can't remember who I was talking to, um, a male stand up about kind of ritual getting into the gigs and how we've got used to getting back out there and what it is. And I've realized for me, and it's because it's what I've always done, but the sort of 15, 20 minutes before I leave the house for a gig or the hotel or wherever I am, putting on my makeup and doing that stuff, I'm, I'm usually listening to a podcast or doing something else, but there's something about going through that process. That means internally I have gone through a slight transformation from sitting on my ass with the cat to I can actually get on stage and do something funny or clever. And it's become a sort of muscle memory thing now. So the the actual act of putting on the makeup and doing my hair, regardless of how I look at the end of it, has become a sort of signal to me unconsciously something changes in me that goes right you're about to go do something now so it's sort of become my little thing now yeah. um, even regardless of how it how it adds up to how I look on the outside I don't know if it's part of your especially for corporates when yeah. you're almost putting on the kind of armor aren't you in a way it
0: is I was just thinking of that word armor and, and obviously the traditional uh, war paint for the for the makeup I, I, absolutely I mean I think it so I did an event um I think it was like last week a couple of weeks ago and it was a vec crutch and i was in like i should a say in lo- case we don't
1: keep the bit in about you having fallen down a manhole <laughs> that this is an ankle injury nothing to do with your pants you were a vec <laughs> crutch i don't want this to get the wrong kind Avec of crutch i listeners. was a vec
0: crutch too <laughs> i'm always a vec crutch um, and so i i had and i was in i actually it was a it was, a, it, was a, it was a really good event i had done stuff i would kind of compared something during the day i was doing this big award ceremony in the evening and I was just in a lot of pain, like so much pain. And I, w- just for you know various things I won't go into, but I could not get myself looking as kind of match fit as, as I would have done in terms of like a sort of, you know, helmet of makeup and hair, which is the kind of thing that makes me feel like ready for action. I feel like I'm sort of going in to do some sort of riot police work when I'm going to do some of these things, like a boom, <laughs> Boom, kind of thing it is like a son of a, it's it like, is. It is. yeah, and I did really and I really felt it like I did totally. I felt like I was a bit naked, which is a horrible thought, a for bit anyone. vulnerable. I did, I did, I did not feel quite as kind of like, right, come on, contenders ready, sort of thing. So, I do think there was a very interesting interplay between like women like us doing these kind of jobs and and that and and the whole appearance because I wonder if men have the same male hosts have the same thing like I wonder if they would be like oh I had a bit of a nightmare because my my dinner jacket was a bit crushed or you know I didn't have the my dinner jacket was still in the dry cleaners and I just had to wear like another jacket I wonder if they would have the same level I wonder if it would affect their performance or their confidence or their psychology as much as it does but I always feel like the bigger my hair, the better. It's like the Dolly part and the bigger <laughs> hair. The bigger the hair, the closer to God. Like, I do feel like if my hair is, like, massive, I feel like, yeah, I'm ready. That's funny, because I spend my
1: whole time trying not to have big hair. My hair goes very Carol Decker from to if <laughs> it's a wet day. So, as you know, I like mine to be a sharp, straight bob, but it very quickly gets very 1980s. So you and I are fighting for very different Ali, hair. I want to see your hair,
0: like, full... 80s like white I'm gonna snake. send you I'm gonna send you a picture of it afterwards I'm and, gonna be uh, so jealous yeah uh, Carol from Tapau she I was like I ha- she was my fantasy here, like when oh, I was growing up, really wanted. Full.
1: When she was famous, and obviously we've now alienated all my young listeners, but when Carol <laughs> Decker was was at her most famous, I was. It was the eighties, and I was a teenager, and I I lo- I could really do that whole thing. People always said I looked like either Carol Decker or Sarah Ferguson. I was going to say Tina. the other <laughs> person I loved was Sarah Ferguson oh, no. and Anne of Green Gables. Like you've literally hit. <laughs> yeah, I was the Venn diagram of those three. That was me, Aisha. Imagine the. Fa- and girling.
0: I, <laughs> yeah, I can bar- I'm can i so excited. I can barely speak now. I have such envy. I have such hair envy. Because
1: <laughs> you and I, I mean, we're both on the corporate circuit and we're probably um, in a way, I mean, we're not rivals because obviously we're all part of the sisterhood. But you and I are probably cleaning up on the corporate dollar um, a bit more than some Uh, comedians, because you and I both have in common that we have sort of more serious business political backgrounds that we're still involved in, as well as being kind of commentators and comedians. And I've definitely found that to be a real sweet spot in terms of getting booked. I mean, I don't know if you've had this, but I've had after dinner speeches, where I've sat and had the dinner at the top table before I've gone and spoken, and and, um, and and people have said to me, you know, blokes on the top table, yes, we were told we had to have a woman this year, so we've got you. <laughs> and I think, right, okay. I mean, and once you're there, obviously, then you can uh, then you can prove that there are other reasons they should have a woman. But I definitely am finding that I think that booking of somebody who can be funny and female and have a voice and credentials in the real world, I, I'm finding that that's quite a popular thing. Is it the same for you?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think people do like that combination of having humour, but also having something of substance to talk about as well. Um, You know, you've got such brilliant insight having been in the corporate world. I've got insights in politics, uh, which is always topical. We seem to be in an age where people are really thirsting uh, for mm. kind of information about politics and discussion about politics. But I do know what you mean at these corporate dinners. My funniest one was I turned up at this event and it was for some sort of like, heat engineer very male like super super male and turned up in the room and obviously people assumed that I was like doing the teas and coffees or drinks or something like that so then I had to explain and I got kind of taken forward to the front and I got I got introduced to some guy and he just looked at me and he was just he just looked like completely baffled and he was like you're not the no you're you are you you're not the after-dinner speaker, are you? And I went, yes, I am. Hi, reporting for duty. And you've never seen a wee man's face fall so fast. He looked absolutely crestfallen and then said in a really quiet voice, I thought we were getting Ian Botham. I was like, "I'm so sorry, I'm not eating both of them." I actually opened my set by saying, "Guys, I just want to say, let's just address the elephant in the room. I just like to send out a huge, heartfelt apology to everybody for not being beefy. All right, beefy in different ways, but I'm not eating both. I'm so, I'm really. I was just, it was amazing. It was just, every, his honesty was just so endearing." And then actually it was all very, very funny and I had a lovely gig and I actually stayed and had a couple of drinks with them afterwards. And then this guy came up to me and he was like, you were so good because I just never thought like somebody like you, I was so disappointed when I saw you and and actually I really like you and I I loved your speech and it was like, yeah, that was really nice.
1: It's a funny thing though when you get that because I have to say, I I usually go under the radar. So if, often at the top table and as you know, when you do these yeah. dinners, you do get put usually at that table and I used not to go to the dinners and then it was actually John Lloyd's um, you know, creator of QI and others that said to me, you should go to the dinners because you get so much of the information you need for your speech at the dinners. So I did. And I thought actually that's a really good point to just be there and read the room. The number of times I that nobody has asked me during the dinner, why I'm there. They just assume, I think that I'm a plus one. They're just <gasps> assuming that I'm with somebody and no one asked me anything. And I just think that it's absolutely fine because in a minute I'll slip up. It. So by the time I go up to be the after dinner speaker, There've been several occasions, no one's had a clue that's what I'm there to do. And that assumption, and I quite like the, I quite like the fact that you can really over-deliver against people's meager expectations because they just have a, they've got a vision in their mind as to who a funny speaker would be, and it's not you and it's not me. And then when we do it, I always have slightly mixed feelings. I obviously you love the praise afterwards if it's gone well. But when people say, I never thought you would be somebody who could do that, I always think that is a very It's kind of damning with faint praise in a way, isn't it? Because why shouldn't you or I? I mean, do do you have it sometimes when you get to venues? I even have it in comedy venues. I get there and I have to negotiate with security to convince them I'm actually an act. I had it the other night at a club where it literally took me about three minutes and security were really sure I wasn't and I wasn't on the list. And the time was ticking. And I said, well, I am literally on stage in about 10 minutes. So do you want to go find someone? But it it was like, he couldn't believe I might be an actor. And I thought, would I have had that if I was a 35 year old guy with a beard? I don't think I would.
0: I mean, as a 45 year old woman with a beard, I mean, I still find (laughs) it, you know, I still it is still tough. No, no, completely. I think I think there is still a thing about what a comedian looks like or or Mm -hmm. what a speaker looks like and they don't look like you or me it's changing slowly but you're so so right I mean I have had lots of events where they say you know and and here's the speaker or here's the host for the evening and you you do you see a look of shock but also real fear in the eyes Mm. of people Mm. and also women in the room as well the few women because these events tend to be very 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 they? usually a lot of the women look absolutely terrified for you and for themselves like you're going to completely disgrace the entire Um, you know, you know, female sort of species by just being really embarrassing or not very good. So it does feel like there's quite a lot of pressure. But I, in a way, quite like having very low expectations. I
1: agree. I agree. (laughs) I get filled. Do you ask to be um, when when I go to do an event where it's more of a keynote? So I do less pure comedy sets at corporate events. I do some, but I do lots of keynotes and I do lots of awards hosting. And I always say to them, can you bill me? There's enough interesting things that you and I have got on our CVs without mentioning comedian to still make us an okay booking. And I always say, just, you know, say I introduce South Park and SpongeBob to the world and whatever else you want that's from my CV, but maybe don't mention the word comedian. And I will reveal that through how I do it and through my story. Are you the same or are you happy to be billed when you turn up as a comic?
0: Well, I think the thing for me is I tend to get billed. How do I get billed? I mean, sometimes I get billed as a comedian. I often get billed as a... You know, you'll know her from telly or you'll know her from, you know, doing lots of political stuff. You'll know her from giving Ed Miliband a bacon sandwich. Well, that's how I tend to kind of get introduced with the Labour thing is the main way that I get introduced. Is not something very disparaging about Ed Miliband. So you may, that line, you know, that is exactly the kind of way I would get introduced. Mm-hmm. So I almost tend to get introduced with like, not just low expectations, but like sub zero expectations. And in fact, I, I got so badly introduced again the other day, literally the entire audience like turned on me midway through the speech and started heckling me about having worked for the Labour Party and having worked for Ed Miliband because people have very strong feelings about that, particularly a lot of people in the corporate world who are, A, like not massively predisposed to the Labour Party Mm -hmm. and they're certainly not very predisposed to Ed Miliband. So I do kind of feel that when I go on stage, like... I don't even start there. I kind of start somewhere down here.
1: So you've got, and I didn't, well, you came to see, you very kindly came to see my show Invisible. And as you know, part of that show, it was the year I turned 50. So it was partly about being invisible uh, and all, society thinking you should be at that point but it was also about the joy of the superpower of invisibility and when you slip into a room and nobody really everybody underestimates you I have this backstage a lot at gigs if people don't know me and haven't gigged with me before I get pretty much dismissed in backstage until I've been on and then I just think that was really nice to not have to say a word just show you know I'll just show you what I'm capable of. And how
0: does that make you feel like when you're backstage at kind of particularly comedy gigs it's it's kind of different for corporates because you're sort of you're there by yourself as the sole performer but how how do you navigate the kind of backstage atmosphere and and banter because I mean I don't gig as regularly as as I haven't I've not been doing very much gigging for for quite a while now but I do remember I would but I often get this if I'm in the green room if I'm doing a panel show or something like that I can get a bit freaked out by me too how do you deal with yeah how do you deal with it
1: Well, I do. One of the things I talk about when I do um, executive coaching and speaking is imposter syndrome. So I'm no stranger to the feeling of it objectively. But I find it incredibly difficult, Aisha. I try and avoid environments where I know that that's going to be a feature which is probably the exact opposite of what I should be doing because I guess nothing's going to change if there are other women like me going do you know what I'll sidestep that I just don't enjoy it and it's not the on stage bit I don't enjoy it it's the off stage is that something that sounds familiar to you
0: 100% I literally was like nodding my head away everything that you said I completely completely um agree and I think it's it's something which is very hard to I think Navigate Because on a sort of intellectual level, you know that you should just put that out of your mind. And when your imposter syndrome flares up, just try and put it in a sort of box or, you know, don't let it kind of override every other emotion. But it's very, very difficult to do that, no matter how skilled you are in giving advice to other people about it. And no matter how much you've thought about it and try to put a strategy in place, it can be incredibly um, emotionally and intellectually disruptive and physically disruptive. Like when you start panicking, like when you when your imposter syndrome really kicks in before you're about to do a gig or an event or something, it, I think it's really interesting, the physical effect it actually mm-hmm. has on, in, on your body. Cause not only is your mind starting to work going, fucking hell, like, why am I here? And mm-hmm. this is a disaster and I just don't belong. This is not for me. What the hell is happening? Why, why, why? And it's just spirals. I find with me, even though I'm quite a calm person, it kind of physically manifests itself. Yeah, and my, my shoulders,
1: shoulders go up, literally. If I see myself totally in a mirror, I'm hunched up.
0: Like this. I kind of feel my, I start breathing like from here, like instead of sort of breathing from where you're meant to be, I can literally, I'm like, my sh- my breathing is so shallow. I can mm-hmm. literally feel my throat closing up as well. And I'm kind of like saying, I'm going, stay calm, stay calm, but my body is like, rah, 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 kind of panic mode. It's really it's helpful horrific. to go into your body at
1: that point. I'll put some stuff in the show notes or I might even do it as my thing I'll do this week at the end of the podcast about imposter syndrome because the great news is there are so many things you can do physically to help yourself out of it. And I do do that before gigs. I fully just get into how I physically feel and just totally disregard any content I'm thinking of saying, whether it's a corporate or a comedy gig. I just think, look, I've got the content. I'm not going to worry about that. All I'm going to worry about is how I'm going to do this, not what I'm going to say. And that's probably when I I used to train people in public speaking. That was the biggest thing I would say is let go of the what you're going to say, because if you don't know it by 10 minutes before, you're not going to know it and just worry about how you're going to be on stage. And that will be what marks you out as a good speaker. But I do find with corporates, and again, I don't know how it is for you, I'm a more confident corporate speaker underneath it all. So I do believe I've got things to say that have some substance. I know I've put in the hard yards in boardrooms. I sort of feel I've earned my place here and I know I can be a bit funnier than a speaker who's not a comedian. So the starting point is never a slam dunk. I never assume I'm going to be great, but I sort of think, well, I'm competent. The real challenge with comedy and how people can psych you out is that even the best comedian in the world will have a bad gig sometimes. Mm. And we know that those you're only ever so many gigs away from a bad gig. So when I'm getting one in my case, one. (laughs) And that is also not true because I've seen you enough to know you're very, very good at all you do. But but there is that feeling with comedy when when you're getting psyched out in, in a big club by often male comedians who've all worked together for years. There is a bit of me that thinks, well, this might be the night when I have an absolutely shit gig and die on my ass. It could easily be. I don't know. Um, hopefully it won't be. The numbers are in favour of it being a good one. But then I, I'm always too... I never feel confident enough in my comedy to just be able to go, fuck you, you wait and you watch. Because a bit of me thinks maybe you'll watch and you'll be horrified. So there's something, yeah, I, I had a really, really bad one a couple of weeks ago that was where it was all about another comedian, how he treated me off stage, what he said on stage that I found offensive and how he was with me in the break. And by the time I got on, I was feeling quite tearful and thinking, I don't want to be in this place of work. I would have, I would go home if this was a night in the pub and that man had been like that to me, I would go home. And I couldn't. And I think those, those times you really, realize we've actually got a really long way to go if voices like yours and mine are seen to be the minority like that should not even be no, a no I
0: completely and you know just hearing you tell that story I mean w- nobody should be put in that position I mean that is a really I've I, look I can imagine a lot of guys being really pissed off for somebody in the green room or that, there might be a comedian that they just absolutely hate and they think is a, a dick or not very good or whatever but I think there's very few male comedians that would be or performers in any situation that would be driven to the point where, as they were about to go on stage, they felt tearful, or they literally felt their body revolting against them because their levels of panic and anxiety were so, so high. It's one thing to have nerves, which everybody gets, and of course, but it's different to be kind of spooked out by other people. And I've I don't I think that's quite a uniquely female experience. I mean, I've had some really interesting experiences, not great experiences. On these kind of panel shows and events, where it does tend to still be, you know, sometimes there's one other woman, but most of the time you're just like this, the the sole female. And I did a a panel show, and I was I felt really like you know I felt very honoured to be part of it, but of course my imposter syndrome just like kicked in. And um, the thing that really spooked me out was the bit at the beginning. We it was like on a Zoom call because it, it was in the pandemic. And came on the, the Zoom call, and there was like f- how many other people? There was like four other people, all, all men, and came on and I went, hi, and like, you know, you said that thing about him being invisible. It was like I was the invisible woman. And the host was like, all right, X. And the other guy was like, all right, Y. And all right, kind of. And they all started talking about football. They started talking about what their kids were doing. They started talking how they like other halves were. And I just was like, am I on mute? Am I kind of... How did you handle that? Because I've been in exactly that position. I and, and literally there's a variety of ways to tackle I it. I did not handle it. I had a complete... I died inside. I felt myself like this crushing down. I felt my shoulders collapsing. I felt my... I just collapsed into myself. And then when it came to the thing where you had to sort of... Like it was like, right, on, cameras, action, on, you know. I think I tried to probably overcompensate or I mm-hmm. felt like my voice sounded really high because I was, my throat was already closed up. Mm-hmm. It was awful. I didn't, I don't think I, I don't think I handled it at all. And that's really interesting to hear you say that because I've heard you do lots of different
1: things. I love, I love you as a broadcaster. I love how you write and, and your comedy is fantastic. And which is why I'm really pleased you, you've come along on the podcast. And when I think about what you're capable of saying and the background you have from childhood to where you are now and the messages you have for us and the things you've done that really, really matter in terms of social change. I think that's a very, very rare thing to find, regardless of gender. It's very rare to find somebody who is as skilled a commentator as you and with such hard-won credentials. So when I hear that, I think that is... Not only is that an absolute disgrace that you had to go through that, but what a waste for the people who then got that content shared with them, because your voice was much needed, I'm sure, on that panel. So that's the other depressing bit. If people only listen to people in their own image, how are they going to get, how's the whole ever going to be bigger than the sum of the parts? So I find those stories really soul destroying just in terms of, literally what we mean by diversity you know we need diverse opinions but most of all we need informed opinions and that's what you've got so yeah the fact that you might be made to feel that way when probably on paper you would have been one of the best qualified in the room is horrific isn't it
0: and I I felt really I felt such a mixture of emotions afterwards in fact I remember when it all finished Ran to the fridge and literally, like, took out a bottle of wine immediately. I was like, I, I had need two to-
1: family packs of Watsits on the way back from the crying <laughs> gig in the car. I had orange powder all over me and my Mini Cooper. <laughs> it like was very a,
0: upsetting. The Donald Trump tribute act. <laughs> exactly. so. um, and I rang two, actually, I rang two of my really good, it was so interesting, because the first people, the only people I wanted to speak to, were my two best female comedian friends, because I just knew that nobody else in the world would understand mm-hmm. Apart from them. And I rang them and they just completely got it immediately. And they were, they were so kind to me. And they were like, listen, I'm sure it was not terrible. And I was just like, oh my God, it was awful. But the thing was, I felt really angry with myself. Like I just was like, I was sort of beating myself up, going, come on. Like it's your fault. Yeah, like get a grip. You're so lucky to have that opportunity. Get a grip, pull yourself together. But I I literally, it was like a sort of force more powerful than my conscious and my intellectual side of my brain it was just this overwhelming sense of panic and I belong here and my body sort of like it was just a really strong strong feeling and I was I was really cross with myself going how come you've not just got a grip on this
1: Well, it's fight or flight, isn't it? And at points we're able to fight and at points we just go in on ourselves. And and I get an almost sort of narcoleptic reaction sometimes (laughs) when I'm treated really badly in that environment. In terms of you having been a senior political adviser to the Labour Party. So we all know what we all hear the phrase political adviser. We know what it means in theory. But I'm really interested from your perspective because it's a very powerful and nuanced role, right? And there are people like you who were very equipped to do it and there are people who get in because they've you know licks the bum of the person who could get them into the role <laughs> i i think that's still quite the case um perhaps that's a little that's, bit... that's
0: literal in in some cases yes
1: yes <laughs> perhaps less in the in the labor party although who knows so so tell me so, so in terms of how you got into it because you were a civil servant and then you got into being a political advisor right
0: yes so i was a um i was a civil servant for a long time in fact i was a civil servant from 1997 through to about 2005, and I'd worked in a lot of different departments. I'd worked at the Home Office, I'd worked at the Ministry of Agriculture, I worked at the Department of Trade and Industry, the DTI, as it was known, and I worked at Number 10 Downing Street. So I had this amazing sort of entry point into politics which was weirdly non-political because civil servants are not meant to be political you are there say you're to... quite
1: opinionated for a civil servant I well assume. I,
0: I think at the beginning I, I sort of wasn't and I was a very good diligent civil servant but I was always interested in politics but I didn't really have strong views of my own because I'd been brought up in quite an apolitical environment as I think a lot of immigrants are a lot of immigrants have the view which is Particularly, my parents, you come to this country, you should understand politics, but don't dare express a view because you don't have the right to have a political view. We're just guests here in this country. We're lucky to be here. We should be grateful to be here and just earning a living and paying taxes and. And have a quiet life. So my- but Were and dad, you a Labour?
1: Would you say that your household was a Labour household, No, that no, wasn't? No.
0: no, no, no. I'd say my parents were really neutral. I think they, I think they moved, I think they were conservative. I think a lot of Asian families were quite mm-hmm. conservative for quite a long time because they were economically conservative mm-hmm. and conservative small c socially conservative, but they didn't like, they never felt comfortable with the Conservative Party because it was pretty racist, particularly mm-hmm. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think they switched to Tony Blair and New Labour because this new thing came along, which looked like it was, you know, quite good on the economy and could be trusted. But for the first time, it was like, hey, why don't we try this new thing where we're like not really dismissive of black and brown people mm-hmm. and kind of like a bit more. Well, I'm not saying it was all kumbaya, but it was quite a big change for, mm-hmm. for, for for that type of kind of politics at that sort of time. So, you know, I hadn't been particularly political, but I was all, I was fascinated in in. In the the machinery of government, how power worked, who who was good at, at, at being an effective performer, was very interested in political communication, hence I was in the press office. And I think over time, I spent a lot of time obviously with Labour ministers because they were in power. And I felt myself gradually thinking, do you know what, I'm kind of agreeing with pretty much everything they're doing apart from the Mm -hmm. one glaring thing which was the iraq war Mm -hmm. but you know in terms of the stuff i worked on i was at the home office when the report into the murder of stephen lawrence came in seismic report the mcpherson report into the metropolitan police Mm -hmm. and lord mcpherson coined this phrase institutional racism which has actually kind of dominated our politics and Mm -hmm. discourse for like the last 20 years very timely at the moment following the the murder of george floyd etc um I was involved in the introduction of lots of flexible working, giving parents more rights at work, fathers, paternity leave. So all this stuff was going on. And I was thinking, I kind of quite agree with what they're all doing. And I was suddenly feeling myself going, yeah, I think I'm actually becoming a bit more sort of political in, I think, quite a good way. Instead of just going, oh, I just like your ideology. I was sort of saying, right, I think all the things you're actually practically doing Makes sense to me. You you are actually trying to do good things. You're trying to, you know, share wealth a bit more, share opportunity, make ro- make work a bit better for people. I was involved in this big um, scheme to for all these poor old coal miners that had emphysema and dust related diseases, mm-hmm. giving out compensation. So I spent a lot of time going to all the former mining communities. A lot of them those red wall seats that fell
1: mm-hmm. at the last
0: general election. But I loved it. I absolutely loved all of that stuff. And I think as time went on. And I will do a bit of a brag now. I was really good at my job. I worked really bloody hard. I think I went, kind of went over and above your average civil servant. So I think I kind of got spotted by um, the political people, the ministers, the special advisors. So they so all you were doing
1: work at Number Ten by then in in through your role as a civil servant. So you Yeah, caught this was the almost IRP like at Number Ten.
0: A, yeah, and I sort of caught the eye of people at Number Ten, and I think they they knew that I kind of went over and above. And then I remember somebody from Number Ten saying to me you should become a should become a political advisor and Mm -hmm. it was something that i would have loved to have done because it's a fascinating job as you said Mm -hmm. at the beginning of this conversation this bit of the conversation you know you have a huge amount of access privilege you get to sit in the meetings you get this bird's eye view of politics Mm -hmm. you have a huge amount of power behind the throne in terms of you get to help shape huge decisions you get to kind of craft legislation you get massive amount of
1: power if you look at power sort of in the wrong hands because i guess that's what we've also seen is that that is quite a pivotal view and you have got a lot of influence and you've got the inside track And you can either use it to the good of the party, to the good of the cause, or you can use it to further your own political agenda and your own relationships and worst case, your own business interests.
0: I think I've had quite an interesting, I suppose, journey through the whole thing. So starting off as a civil servant for for a long time, and I really, you know, have a huge amount of respect for the civil service. And I think I then did a short stint in business, actually Mm -hmm. working for a big record company, EMI. That's a whole different story. Then was doing lots of stand-up in the meantime then I come back to politics as a political advisor just in the last three years of the Labour government with Gordon Mm -hmm. Brown being prime minister now which was a fascinating time and also I was very lucky because I got to work on a huge piece of legislation, which very few special advisors get to do. Which is the Equality Act. Yeah, the Equality Act, which was massive, huge piece of legislation. And you helped draft that. So this is the 2010 Equality Act. Yeah, which which is all the things we see now on the gender pay gap and, Mm -hmm. and lots of other things, you know. Absolutely. That's all. It's hard to believe that was
1: only just over a decade ago when you think how fundamental a lot of things in that act are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we fell out of Paris. So then I went into opposition. Mm -hmm. So I had seen, I had been a civil servant Mm -hmm. in a very muscular, robust, strong Labour government. I then became a political advisor as Labour was kind of losing its sort of potency. I then become a political advisor in opposition which is incredibly difficult for a political party that has been in power for such a long time 13 years and then they fall out of power did you
1: have the invisibility feeling then that suddenly people weren't calling you and didn't really care as much so being the most sought after guys in the room suddenly you weren't the sort of hot ticket at the party
0: no i think what was interesting about that is actually when you when you because i stayed um a lot of special advisors left when we fell out of power and they wanted go and get snapped up as lobbyists or you know Mm -hmm. get get big jobs in corporate in the corporate sector Mm -hmm. like as we know so there was a bit of a mass exodus so i decided to stay um you know huge pay cut, and you know everybody you know you're now part of a losing team but i thought it would be really interesting to stay with the party and see how it transitioned into opposition and it was a fascinating fascinating time but no i think people were still interested because it was just so unusual they were interested my boss Harriet Harman took over being acting leader she did that twice I then worked with Ed Miliband when when he became leader and that was a very interesting and unusual time as well because you had two brothers going up against each other Mm. it was very controversial Ed Miliband's win right from the beginning was was shrouded in controversy and mm. anger and division because lots of people in the party wanted his brother David Miliband to win. But lots of the members wanted Ed Miliband to win. There was a lot of anger with like the trade unions and it was a very fraught time for the for the party. So and I, you'd
1: have been briefing Ed Miliband when he because something that um that you and I have in common as well as our close proximity to David Cameron in uh, in our my case in boardrooms, because he was at Carlton Television um heading up internal comms when I was there. And obviously he was constantly kind of bear baiting Miliband in PMQs right so you must have gone through having you've prepped Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband for PMQs I guess over numerous months and years and I imagine my impression of the two of them as a punter that must have been quite a different experience depending which of them you are working with
0: I mean Harriet and Ed are like chalk and cheese. So Ed would be like, oh God, all of a sudden we've gotta start, we've gotta start like prepping for PMQs. And it would literally be Thursday. Like we would have just done PMQs right. the day before, and you would be so like six days oh, obviously, obviously, <laughs> obviously we've just got to like, he's such a SWAT, like such a total, you know, girly SWAT. Like he is the ultimate girly SWAT, bless him. So, you know, it, so prepping with Ed was like a hostage situation. And also he's got such a huge brain. Like Harriet is really clever as well, but Ed is just like it's just such a kind of classic. Wonky geek that he just needs, like, you know, All he needs to, every fact mm-hmm. in the world and then some. And, like, you know, we would have this amazing briefing team that were so super clever. They'd come in with a a, a folder this thick, like a foot thick, mm-hmm. facts, figures, statistics, you know, policies, you know, everything that went back like, you know, 10, 20 years. He would still come in the next day, having been up till like two in the morning, and he would have discovered a fact that mm-hmm. none of us knew. Mm-hmm. So you would be in these kind of unbelievable hostage situations where, you know, it was like daylight when you started prepping and then, you know, it was nighttime, it was dawn breaking, like the seasons were changing. Like you would literally be like, I'm never gonna get out of this room. Do
1: you think he over, do you think he was over preparing? Cause I think there's an element of, of stuff when you see what we do that sometimes when you overthink it, you're not in the moment and you can't actually address what goes on live in the room. And now the pressure is much more off him. I think you know I'm one of many many thousands who've watched him and thought god if only you had been a bit more like this then because now he's had real kind of swashbuckling swagger a couple of times where you're like bloody hell you just summed that up and nailed it yeah but I guess it's the same as we were saying you know there's no expectation now if exactly. anything everyone's like you're a bit of a laughing stock, and he's like well fuck it I'll say this which was so much more effective than this really overprepared, awkward geeky nervous he seemed like such a victim and was treated appallingly and it was it was it must have been really painful for you to Watch when you'd gone through all that prep to give him everything he could need to succeed?
0: Well, I think the thing is, it's really hard when you're leader of the, the opposition. It is the worst job in British yeah, politics. Of course, because of everything we've said, like the amount of pressure on you. When you have literally got every newspaper in the country, every media commentator, every cartoonist scrutinizing every inch of how you look, every facial expression, everything you do, you say, your family, everything about you. And you're basically just, you know painted as this complete stupid malign thick ugly mm. moron you know non and it gets so personal it was always so personal it gets wasn't personal it yeah. and that does you know I think I defy you have to have you have to have so much confidence like if you have a scintilla of self-awareness or that imposter syndrome that we talked about earlier being in frontline politics is so hard it's mm-hmm. so so hard and I think for anyone who's leader of the opposition, and I think the same is true of, of, of Keir Starmer to be. I was honest going to ask as what well. you
1: think of Keir Starmer. And so the job I think he's because doing.
0: the pressure is off Ed Miliband, and he knows that he's not going to be leader of the Labour Party again, he doesn't want to be leader of the Labour Party. The stakes are lower for him, mm-hmm. so it's a bit like when we were talking earlier because our expectations of us are quite low when we do things. If we exceed expectations, people are oh my god, you're like really good, mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of similar with. With Ed, and everybody's all like, oh my God, Ed's really good now. You know, oh, why wasn't he like this earlier? It's like, well, it is quite hard to be like that when you, the same journalist, were literally slagging him off 24 mm-hmm. 7 about, you know, f- five years ago. So,
1: but it is a while ago as well. Don't you think sometimes people grow into a role after they've had the role? In some ways, I think, would he have been better at it now? Obviously, what's formed him into who he is now is those years being the leader of the opposition. But you sort of also think, is there a sort of maturity and something that's where he's kind of come into his own a bit more now?
0: Well, I think he's come into his own because of what he's gone through. Yes. So that's yes. Yeah, so you. So can't I think I think two. I think I think it's, it's hard to, to do a counterfactual in terms of if he had just carried on being leader of the I mean, I don't think he could have just carried on being leader of the Labour Party for all of this time, no. having lost an election and just carried on. Like you just... I don't think you can really do that in politics. I think it is quite ineffective. Very, very few people. Well, you need to hand the to... baton to a
1: series of other people who fuck it up. I think that's ideal. That's what we it?
0: do in the Labour Party. Yes, we brilliant. like to hand that that baton of failure and also disappointment over? on. And there's always lots of people ready lots to of people carry on. It. Yeah. People will keep the flame of failure alive in the Labour
1: Party. <laughs> but, dear God, let's hope that doesn't carry on further. It's funny because I physically live equidistance between Ed Miliband and Keir Starmer. So if you drew a triangle on the A, on the a- to Z, that's where I live I can't believe I I was probably living really close to you and I lived in Camden maybe we lived in the same house Aisha. you know obviously we did is um I just have to ask you about the uh the bacon sandwich was that that wasn't probably as it looked in the media was was, did you have a hand in the bacon
0: I did not have a hand in the bacon because I was actually not even in that d and I was like
1: Well, there are a lot of people saying they weren't in that day. No, I definitely wasn't in that. No, the
0: tragedy is is that everybody. So, sort of hanging, going to sort of the big events was always quite a big. Everyone wanted to sort of go, so there was always a bit of a bun fight to kind of go to these things. And I and I remember, like, I definitely was not. I mean, there are many other horrific things I have been involved in, like the pink bus for one. But I do remember being off that day, and suddenly my phone just went absolutely mad. I was just looking at all these pictures, and I was just like what but also I think the thing which was really tough was that he just wanted to have a bacon sandwich and I think the team that were with him that day were like I don't think this is a good idea and he was like I'm really really hungry and just and just had it I do think you know even a Greg
1: sausage roll would have been preferable wouldn't it
0: but you know what Callie you say that I I defy anybody to if you had a snapper on you eating a meal they would catch a shot of you looking horrific or something falling out of, of your course. mouth. well, even if, if people are watching you all the time anyway, I mean, it's, to not get, it's hard of, to get a good yeah, shot of let alone to, and a bad I just one. think it was one of those things where this, there is so much made of it and it's all, you know, we turned it into a sort of a joke because what happened afterwards was, of course, everybody went absolutely mad about it. But when you look back on that, and it's a big ha-ha joke now, and we all make jokes about it, and Ed's made loads of jokes about it, I make loads of jokes about it. It's a really good gag now for all of us. Mm-hmm. But when you look at everything that has gone completely batshit in this country, when you look at things that have gone so badly wrong with, with, with society, with the economy, with politics, which is a state, with the state of our democracy, when you look at what people have got away with, literally got away with scot-free, and you look at the absolute uproar because a man ate a mm-hmm. fucking sandwich, mm-hmm. and everybody just went mad about it. You do kind of think we're not really like a serious country, sometimes. yeah? It's about
1: headlines, not principles, isn't it? And, and I heard there's... you them about. I was going to say I'm about to ask you the three questions I ask everybody, but I did just want to say this. I heard you um, on someone else's podcast, um, and these are your words. You said, "I've um, I've dedicated my childbearing years to progressive causes." And you have done an incredible amount, you know, the, the Equality Act alone and your involvement in that has, has literally kind of changed society for the better. But is there you, you, you talk a lot about your career and politics and there are so many incredible things you've done on your CV where you don't you talk less about your home life kind of on the record and your personal life. Do you feel that has had to be a sort of trade off for you to achieve as highly as you have in terms of the time and energy you put into your yourself and your home life and your personal life?
0: Yeah. Definitely, um, 100%. I actually recently wrote an article in the Evening Standard about when I decided not to have children because I was in my sort of mid to late 30s and I just started being a special advisor and I really, I'd worked really, really hard to get there and I looked around me. There were very, very few women at that level of politics. There were very few women in the room making decisions. And you could just it just was so stark to me Mm -hmm. that you could not or I could not have it all I just couldn't Mm -hmm. I mean I could barely have what I was having Mm -hmm. you know I was like crawling over broken glass Mm -hmm. to just get the the bit that I was that I was allowed to have and I just knew that I couldn't I couldn't do it all I just knew that if I had kids there was no way I could do I mean I was I was working a job where I was taking calls from journalists from six o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was in the house of commons till about midnight mm-hmm. every night. And that's just not you cannot do that with a family you just cannot unless do that unless you're a man
1: because there'll have been lots of men of doing course that. yeah and of that's course. the bit the having it all I mean that would have been a similar period to, that there was this myth until not that long ago wasn't there about the having it all woman being something to celebrate I know in corporate America there'd be women having babies and coming back when the baby was 10 days old and it was seen as a badge of honour and I used to find that horrific I used to think is that what we're telling young women they should be doing they should be going off and having a baby like they've just gone out to get a sandwich and will be really supportive of the fact they've come back without even taking time with their baby so yeah so you and i come from the sort of uh, different side different parts of the kind of spectrum of the having it all woman and what you sacrifice and you know and, and, and you do you sacrifice a lot you know I, I just i decided to have kids and try and do it all and paid a heavy price for that in in other ways but i was just interested to hear your opinion on that and we all owe you a bit of a debt of uh a debt of oh, thanks that for is what so you've you so... done uh in that regard so i did but to I, I, it's so funny to saying there.
0: like um as you said I mean I'm literally sitting in my um, I've just moved house which is very nice but I moved about eight weeks ago and there's just boxes all around me and I, I'm just one of those person like I think professionally I, I really you know I'm match fit but on a personal level whether it's relationships or just even having clean pants and, and clothes out of boxes I'm like my personal life is like a disaster zone namaste, motherfuckers.
1: What would you pick Aisha as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment?
0: That's a good question. I've thought, I've thought like so long and hard about this. Um, so I think it was probably like post when I left politics and I was really, really heartbroken when we lost the general election and, you know, Ed Miliband resigned and then um, we didn't know what was going to happen with the Labour Party and then Jeremy Corbyn got elected and, you know, I was just like, I can't, this is, you know, anyway, I, I left politics and I really didn't know what I was going to do with myself. And I was 39, 40, about to turn 40, you know, that quite difficult moment in a woman's life where you're like, none of the things that I was meant to have done had come good. I would not got married. I had not had children. The one thing I had like invested in was the Labour Party and my love of the Labour Party. And that was all gone. And I was just mm-hmm. like, what the hell am I going to do? And I got loads of, I, you know, I was sort of thinking maybe I should just get a corporate job and I was like you know I do want to do I want to do something different I want to use my voice I want to do something in journalism I want to use my kind of comedy skills and things and one day there was this hilarious kind of moment or I was just on Twitter and two announcements popped up on my timeline one was that George Galloway got given this massive radio show and talk radio Mm -hmm. the next thing on my timeline was that George Osborne just got given the editorship of Mm -hmm. the Evening Standard So I saw these two men called George just suddenly getting all these really big gigs. And I was like, fuck this. I was literally like, (laughs) fuck this. George Galloway is like a complete, what, what? I mean, I know he's very like kind of location stuff. but I was like, come on, the guy is just like such a charlatan. George Osborne, very respectful of George Wilson, very different politics, but he's not a journalist. He's never edited, he's never Mm -hmm. had a column, let alone. So I was like, right be more george be more george i had this total moment i think i might even tweeted it and i i did this thing which had just i really hustled i just was like right if guys like that with zero experience and whatever can just keep kind of just swanning from one thing to another i've got to get my hustle on so i emailed george osborne i got his address and he just got and he was just got appointed the thing of the evening. Did Sanders. you know him from your time No, I didn't. I'd never met him in my mm-hmm. entire life. He'd been my mortal enemy mm-hmm. um, because of course, you know, he was preparing David Cameron for PMQs and mm-hmm. I was preparing Ed and Levan and we were like ripping each other up. We were like two tribes going to war. Mm-hmm. I did know his special advisor and I messaged her and I was like, I need to, I need to get in contact with George Osborne. And I, I was writing a book about PMQs at the time. So I was like, I, I wanted to ask him for an interview. And I said at the end of my email, you've just got this massive gig being editor of the Evening Standard. I think you've got to freshen up your um, roster of columnists. I know I don't have the same politics as you. I know from a different, really different background from you, but I think you should give me a go because, you know, you've got this big gig, spread it around a bit. And he messaged me back like quick as a flash. He said, yes, I'll do your interview about your Prime Minister's Questions book. But then he was like, "Uh, I can't. I can't believe you just, he was was quite, I think, taken aback. He was just like, I can't, you know, the idea that I'm going to start like ripping up my roster of columnists, I haven't even got in there. That is like, no, I absolutely can't. He was like, I'll have a think about it, but I can't absolutely not. Am I going to, so I was like, all right, well that was, I've just made a bit of a tit of myself and just, um, then the day before he started as editor of the Evening Standard, I got a message from the Evening Standard saying, the new editor would like to like you to write a column in the, Paper on his first D, and that was one column I'd done a few kind of columns before but they were just quite temporary things mm-hmm. and I'd said to him I want a regular column a regular column in your newspaper that you've just been given the editorship of and I got it And fair
1: play to George Osborne to be fair. So he took that with him, lodged it, and did something with it. So he's just gone right up in my estimation. Um, That's quite the fucking hustle, Aisha. Fair play to you. (laughs) I don't know if I'd have the confidence to do it now. To be honest, I think I'm a hustler. But I'm like, yeah, good on you. I'm wondering what my hustle is going to be after we finish this. What's your um? What's your favorite joke?
0: oh my god what's my favorite joke uh probably my favorite joke is it's not really a joke a lot of people have heard this but my favorite joke is my Ed Miliband story about Prime Minister's questions which is as I was as we were discussing it was really really tough uh, doing PMQs and uh, uh, David Cameron was really horrible to Ed Miliband he just used to like hump him every week and take the absolute piss out of him particularly like weird things like his voice and how he looked and his brother and his dad. It was like bullying at Eton, wasn't it, the atmosphere? It was. And one one Wednesday morning, Ed used to get really, really stressed out. And he used to get really stressed out before going into PMQs. And I had to try and keep him calm. And I had, like, um, we'd done these questions about the badger cull and it was like a really big deal And Ed was like getting really stressed out And he kept running his hands through his hair And he had this like lovely dark hair With a big stripe of white going down it And just before we were going into the chamber He was like oh my god I've got to ask Oh something!" I've honestly." ask you something like, honestly, honestly, oh my god. And I was just like oh my god what is it What is it?" I was like is it our deficit reduction plan Blah blah, blah. And Ed was like no, honestly just answer me this Am I a badger Am <laughs> I, was- I a badger <laughs> I was like What Am I a badger and then just like this ludicrous like he you think we have imposter syndrome ed Miliband thought he was a badger did he think that, we- that was what cameron was going to say yeah. at him,
1: you're a badger so he thought is i don't know if now is a good moment to reveal that i have the same hairdresser as ed Miliband. so there you go i can only aspire <laughs> to the badger locks i can't remember what did happen did cameron go on to level badger at him he, or not? he didn't
0: i think it was partly because one time cameron had Madly, just shouted Basil Brush at Ed, who'd had quite a bad haircut. I remember that.
1: Week. That. that went pretty much viral, didn't it? In the days before this things went like, viral in the same way. So I
0: think he was obviously feeling, and he had, had once had a very, very bad run in with Laura Koonsberg, having had a very bad haircut, which was like just too short and it was all really stressful. And um, so I think he was also feeling a bit sort of hexed about it. But it was just this like hilarious moment where I was just like, you are a human man. <laughs> trying to be the prime minister. You were not a small woodland creature. Get in the fucking chamber and try and become the prime minister. <laughs> like it was just weird. And then we, we had to get Ed Balls into the room. Ed Balls came, like he, he had this emergency session with Ed Bowles, Ed Balls comes flying in. He's like, what is it? It's tied around, right? just like, what is it? And Ed's like, Ed, we've known each other a long time. We've got to want to be this man to man. It's like, what is it? Am I a badger? And Ed was just looking at me going, is he actually having like a break down? <laughs> Sounds like a cross between Toad of Toad Hall and The Thick of It. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, you look at The Thick of It now and you're like, it's pretty tame compared to what is actually oh, going God, on. Oh, God, I think
1: that. I love Veep and I stopped being able to watch Veep by the time Trump had got in because I was like, no, Veep seems like a really professionally run, yeah. decent outfit compared to what we're seeing in actual power. Um, If you had one bit of life advice that you could give to anyone listening, Aisha, what would it be?
0: Be brave. Be braver than you think you can be because... The more brave you are, the more amazing things you achieve. And I think being brave can be things like just like, you know, asking for things and, and putting yourself out there. I just think that for so many women, like the penny drops when we're kind of in our late 30s, early 40s. The tragedy for women is that the penny drops about being brave and taking risks like so much later than it does for our male counterparts. Mm-hmm. And just as we're starting to get, hit our stride and get brave, the fucking menopause, so I'm swearing a lot on this, the menopause kind it of It is hits. called namaste motherfuckers. Oh, oh okay. yeah, of course. The clue's in the title. <laughs> you know, then you're putting menopause sort of hit. So my big advice to, to sort of younger women is be, just be, be brave. That doesn't mean like being an asshole or being kind of, that's different, but be brave. Put yourself out there, kind of hustle for things ask for things go beyond your comfort zone i think women particularly in politics and particularly in in corporate life you get put in a box and you get put in a lane very very early on and you're allowed to do some things but you're not allowed to traverse into a different lane or you're not allowed to kind of you know expand beyond the not just your comfort zone but the comfort zone that other people see you in so be brave
1: that was ayesha Hazarika. every episode i pick a thing inspired by my guest that i'm going to try and this week it's all about imposter syndrome During the first lockdown, when I was out of work, like lots of people and a bit of a loose end, I decided to get back into one of the things I used to do, which was coaching. And I offered 100 one-off, one-hour pro bono coaching sessions to people in the creative industries who'd lost their jobs. Um, The people I spoke to, it went on for a few months, this little thing I did. Um, And they were a very diverse group of people, but they did have one thing in common. And that was that every single one of those 100 people thought that everyone else was doing better than they were in lockdown down. The first ever episode of this podcast of Namaste Motherfuckers was with the journalist and writer Oliver Berkman and in one of my favourite editions of his This Column Will Change Your Life for The Guardian, he described imposter syndrome as comparing your insides with other people's outsides and I really liked that. There's a link to that article in the show notes, as well as to his books, the most recent of which, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. I haven't read yet, even though I promised him I would. So that is what I'm going to do this week. So that is it for this episode. We will be back in your feed next Monday, as always, when I will be speaking to comedian, writer, actor, and podcaster, Alison Spittle.
0: I hadn't heard of a podcast before I was a guest on a podcast. It is about eight, eight years ago, nine years ago.
1: Namaste, motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers.